Hello and welcome to the Alternative Book Club podcast, the online spin-off from the Literary Comedy Night. I am your host, Shirley Hulse, and today we're joined by podcaster and doctoral researcher at the University of Oxford, it's Chelsea Haith. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's a bit rainy, but there was some sunshine and I feel confident about having hit word count uh, today. So I'm quite well. Thank you. How are you doing? I am all right. I um, went outside because it was sunny for a bit and hung out with the chickens, which is my social life now. <laughs> you mentioned hitting your word count. How is your thesis going? It is It is going quite well. I am on target to submit in time. Yeah, which I am shocked by. And I think my supervisor and everyone I know is surprised because one, I have terrible self-doubt and two, uh, there's been a global pandemic. I don't know if you heard. So mm. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have pivoted some of the work and cut a chapter because I had invented one for no purpose. So now I have three rather long content chapters and a very long intro chapter and I will soon begin editing them into a single document that contains one or two ideas fleshed out into approximately 90,000 words. Oh my god I'm so impressed it sounds like so many words and I know that if I were to do something like this I would definitely leave it until the night before and then realize that it's just not humanly possible. Although I I don't know I'm not that surprised that you have managed to finish it because you are like the hardest working person I know and also on top of your thesis I know you've been writing a blog as well so it's like extra word for your word count. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I try not to count in the emails that I send every day, but like, we're heading into outer space with these numbers at this point. <laughs> well, I've definitely seen someone who's counted up their word count, including emails, someone who's a journalist. And it's it's surprising how many words there are. And it is part of your creative output, even though it's like not really a creative medium. Yeah, well, you're trying to sell yourself in so many of your emails, like, please fund me, I'm special and wonderful. <laughs> so... You know, there is there is a creative element to that in that it's wholly a lie. Um, but, I, <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I do write a, an absolute uh, shit ton of emails um, to fund my various projects um, on top of the PhD just to get that little, you know, a little endorphin hit because a three-year project with absolutely no validation is is a really hard time. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you want to explain briefly what you're studying? Or what you're researching? Yeah, I am doing a DPhil, a Doctor of Philosophy is what they call it at Oxford. It's a PhD everywhere else in the world in speculative fiction and urban inequalities. The current working title, and it has changed many times, but the current working title is Anxieties of Time, Speculative Disruption in Urban Contemporary Dystopian Cities. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of keywords or tag words in there that I'm hoping will you know, get the punters interested. But basically, I think about how the rise of the novel and the rise of modernity have resulted in what we're now seeing as a really strong interest in dystopian lit and, uh, mm-hmm. and how so much of that is set around our interaction and our experiences of urban spaces and our kind of estrangement from the, the spaces that we live in, but also the people that we live with and around. And I don't just mean being fed up with your boyfriend during lockdown. I mean, we don't know our neighbours. Um, and yet these are the people who are kind of 
who would typically kind of function as our community. So yeah, so it brings in a whole bunch of, of fields, but broadly I'm I'm saying that cities are, are hard uh, and difficult places to live in, but we do it anyway because global capitalism. Mm. That sounds really interesting, particularly at the moment in terms of it feels a bit like a dystopian piece of fiction, but it's actually real life and somehow we've crossed over. Yeah. I'm thinking that you might be speaking about some of this stuff in your talk. Yes. I thought I would speak a little bit about what speculative fiction is. There is a bookshop in Cape Town, the best bookshop in the world, called The Book Lounge, which has recently introduced a shelf just for speculative fiction to sort of cater to this uncertainty about what the genre is and how it lies between science fiction and fantasy and literary fiction. And it's a it's a genre question that I have explored in my podcast, Narrative Futures, with the excellent Jared Shuren and with, uh, with other kind of researchers and writers in this space. But speculative fiction has kind of been under, under scrutiny, I suppose, for the last 20 or so years. And it became a particular sort of flashpoint in genre studies when Margaret Atwood said that she wasn't writing science fiction, she was writing speculative fiction. And Ursula Le Guin sort of wrote in response to that in, I think it was The Guardian, in a review of, of one of Atwood's novels, saying that Atwood is trying not to relegate herself to the literary ghetto mm. by claiming science fiction as a genre. And this has sort of kicked off a lot of questions about elitism, about what genres are, about what literary fiction is, and how we should actually consider literary fiction perhaps more as a genre than as a kind of touchstone because it has all its own tropes, etc. And the fact that, you know, the, the book prizes very often tend to make literary fiction seem as though it isn't a genre, it is its kind of its own special thing, but it isn't. So speculative fiction kind of meets those genre questions in the middle to pose quite interesting questions about how we read and about how we engage with popular culture. You know, we don't have a speculative romance which I mean, which would be fantastic, but we, you know, we don't think about it that way. But science fiction and fantasy, uh, when it's done cleverly or intelligently or in, you know, in a very progressive style, is considered speculative. And that does several things. Sometimes it can mean that it, it relegates parts of the genre, parts of science fiction and fantasy genres to pop culture and suggests or presumes that they are lesser, that they are not high culture. And the other thing um, that it does is it, it kind of suggests that to speculate means something more. And that's kind of where I come down on, on the issue. Mm. So here's a little bit of Latin um, in the typical Oxford manner. Um, so the so the, the term speculative comes from the idea of contemplation, and I think it's really interesting that the contemporary imbrication of the word in finance connotates a kind of pervasive, future-oriented, teleological sort of wealth accumulation association with the word. But to speculate derives from the Latin specere and specula, meaning to look and watchtower, respectively. And the old French speculation, or I mean, that sounds very Spanish, um, <laughs> but there's a CI in it, so I'm going to go with that. I have a degree in French, but I can't pronounce this. It means close or rapt attention. And then the anglicized speculation that we have um, enters English in the 14th century and becomes more commonly used in reference to financial investments. 
And then the word theory, which um, is via the late Latin, but it's actually from Greek, theoria, means contemplation or speculation. And it comes from the word theoros, which means spectator. So I think that there's something really interesting about how the, the way the language has evolved, where we think about the infinitive to speculate, and the, the concept of speculation as theorizing about the world. And that's kind of where my, my research comes in. But I think that that's what so much of the literature is doing at the moment, really importantly, is theorizing other ways of imagining. So great books like N.K. Jemisin's The Broken Earth trilogy. There is a, a kind of theorizing of how else the apocalypse might take place, a far more exciting apocalypse than the one we're living through. There's work by someone like E.J. Swift, who imagines climate change in a really interesting way. And there's the use of the dystopian setting or the climate disaster or, you know, an autocracy or a theocracy to theorize about how we're currently living. And I think those places, those that, that kind of tension between, you know, the method of, of uh, political philosophy, which is, you know, the thought experiment and the effect of, of the speculative fiction novel. Um, I think that intersection is where the genre is so rich and has so much to offer. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So I just wanted to make sure that I was understanding things properly just because I am kind of interested in where that line between science fiction and speculative fiction is drawn or whether it's even possible to draw a line at all. Mm. So I think that with time a line will be drawn but we are only a hundred years into the genre of science fiction. Mm. Um, so science fiction sort of kicks off in the 1920s with Hugo Gernsback who publishes a magazine called Amazing Stories. And whether or not they're actually amazing, they contain what is sometimes called uh, science fictional stories that are more concentrated on the science. And so for the longest time, science fiction has been dominated by white dudes who are more mm. interested in how rockets get to the moon than they are in who's flying the rocket and why are they all white men. So that has been a thing in science fiction for a really long time. American science fiction and British science fiction uh, have done very different things in that kind of period, particularly in the 1960s. British science fiction gets very gloomy about the state of the world and American science fiction is extremely optimistic about capitalism and like, no prizes for guessing why. And so there's, there's, there's kind of these two strains. But to think about science fiction in this way, to kind of place it in two global superpowers is to fail to recognize where else this kind mm. of undertaking is is what was happening right yeah and so when you read the work of someone like ken Liu, who is um a contemporary writer i think his recent book hidden girls has just come out but Ken Liu, who is the translator for Shijin Liu and is a novelist in his own right of a fantasy epic and of um, collections of, of sci-fi stories or speculative fiction stories, you know, he, he kind of locates questions of what it means to organise the world differently in different cultures. It sounds like it, it's much broader and I definitely understand what you're saying about Margaret Atwood kind of trying to distance herself from that science fiction label mm. because... In my experience, and I think we talked about this in the in the last podcast, actually, about kind of Isaac Asimov and Philip K. Dick, which is the only two pieces of science fiction I have read. And then I was like, oh, oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Philip K. Dick, has he ever has he ever met a woman? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what he's speculating about. <laughs> what are women like? Theorizing the woman. <laughs> <laughs> it's the future. I may never meet one. 
Oh God. Oh yeah. I really, really did not enjoy those books. I felt like I was obliged to try them. Mm. I think what you were saying about it being much more broad about things like climate change, there is this kind of like white male need to conquer things and have that kind of speculation like the financial side of things that you were talking about like Mm. Elon Musk trying to get to Mars is kind of the embodiment of that genre maybe whereas at the moment I'm like why can't he just fix climate change he's got so much fucking money why can't he just have a go at climate change so novels exploring climate change or different kinds of apocalypse sound to me much more interesting and much more I don't know maybe useful for the world I don't think fiction always has to be useful but I think it is a way of us reflecting on ourselves have you found anything that, that's really changed how you are looking at the world now and maybe the apocalypse as you described it that we're living through <laughs> <laughs> I mean we think about the the end of the world as we know it right people talk about the new normal mm. and, and you know, that, that's kind of what apocalypse refers to though there are mm. many many theorists who would um who would bring me up on that so I think the one of the writers um that features in um in my thesis is Kim Stanley Robinson who I'm quite conflicted about He writes really interesting kind of collectivities responding to disaster. So in New York 2140, the sort of community who bands together and, spoiler alert, essentially manages to crash the stock market, force a housing and rent strike and student loan strike, and causes America to nationalise the banks, and essentially creates this kind of slightly more uh, communist world. Similarly, his most recent novel, Ministry of the Future, very kind of the same kind of intentions politically, uh, but as a fiction, as a piece of fiction, it's not that convincing. I'm not, I'm not overwhelmingly drawn into the story. So there is a fine line between political theorizing and telling a story that has what David Sargent calls narrative traction. And I think that there's, you know, I, I, I want, I want these texts to have traction. I mean, I want speculation to have the the kind of traction that makes people read the book and go, I have to do better. And this is how I have to do it. You know, I need to join a committee or I need to recycle or I need to try meet free Mondays or whatever they're whatever they're giving a go, basically. So I think that there is a, you know, a political uh, intent with so many of these texts. And that's kind of what I'm trying to think about with with the term speculation and with reading some of these books. The way that black women are reimagining um, slavery, the, the way that black women have, someone like Octavia E. Butler has reimagined what it means to be a human. At what point do you stop being a human being if your species is you know, sharing biological uh, bits with alien species in the Xenogenesis um, trilogy? I mean, mm. that's all the kind of stuff that I think is so rich for rethinking how we're approaching questions of what is the new normal? How do we want to live our lives? Is capitalism functioning for us? Who do we count as human? Who is grievable in the Butlerian sense? Mm, very interesting. I just saw on Twitter that very sadly Captain Tom Moore had died and mm. they've put the flag at half mast and Downing Street. But there's so many people who've died of COVID. Yeah. It felt like such a, a weird thing to pick one person out and this person deserves so much more credit. I mean, he's done amazing things, but lots of people have done amazing things. And are these people's lives not worth, you know, mourning because they weren't very famous on television? Mm. Makes me think about the doctors and nurses in France who were working on the front line. Any immigrant frontline workers in France were given, healthcare frontline workers were given uh, citizenship of France. And, you know, what, what Britain has done is made 
a hostile environment for those very people who um, probably were keeping uh, Captain Tom Moore alive. So there's a, a question there of whose lives matter and whose lives don't matter um, or don't mm. matter as much, or don't matter as publicly, right? Mm. An elderly white gentleman who represents, you know, a lot to do with uh, the Second World War, um, you know, the conversations about having a blitz spirit, although we didn't blitz ourselves. We're currently blitzing ourselves, though. I think that there's there's a lot that goes into kind of creating the uh, kind of British spirit. Um mm in in celebrating someone like Captain Tom Moore, even though he is a brilliant man and did an amazing thing during his fundraising activities and absolutely should be mourned. But his passing is symbolic of not only, you know, the, the propaganda around around Brexit, but also symbolic of of, you know, we can get through this and, you know, everyone was just like, buckle up, but actually they, they can't because this disease doesn't just, you know, it, it doesn't choose who it takes. Um, mm. And I think there needs to be a kind of greater awareness of that, and that a lot of people have have died unnecessarily, and and that that is, you know, something that the Tory government is going to have to um, account for. Yeah, this government is very much feeding off that kind of propaganda, like you said, that imagery of the war. It always seems to be war related and very, I don't know, like everyone's kind of a hero, but uh, to me, it seems kind of at surface level. Mm rather than actually really genuinely being like, yes, these nurses and doctors are heroes. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, their heroes will clap for them. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of cynicism available this year. Um, but I want to take it back to what you are writing about in your thesis. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in how cities kind of play into all of this. Mm. Yeah, so I think, so in the sort of in the intro chapter work, I'm sort of thinking through ideas of the uncanny, the uncanny space. So there's a little bit of kind of gothic horror theory mm. there and um, dislocation and uh, how we kind of feel disconnected to the spaces that we live in. And I start off with the image of, of Edward Hopper's, you know, quite isolated image, you know, that well, the image created in Edward Hopper's isolated paintings you know we've got the the night owl stuff and the diner at midnight and you know the woman sitting alone on her bed and the man alone Mm. in his office and these are all images you know from the 1950s I'm gonna say I might be wrong where he's thinking about how the way that we live now in cities is an isolating experience Mm. and yet only now in 2020 well when it was 2020 now it's 2021 people were kind of coming back to those paintings and saying like, this is really resonating with me. You know, we're all Edward Hopper paintings now. But at the time, the streets were full, the places were busy, but people felt alone. Now, in a lot of cases, we really are alone. Or are we, right? Because how many of us are shut up in, you know, small spaces with loved ones, with family members, with small children. Mm. The building I live in, I have to wear my mask around the building because I'm not in a household with 120 other flats, obviously. Mm. And, you know, the, the small children downstairs, you know, I can hear them crying every night. You know, it's not it's not for what for for lack of audibility <laughs> that I feel mm. cut off. It's for lack of genuine connection. And I think there is something in that to do with um, the way we inter- interact online, but also, you know, a lot to do with the way cities are structured, that we are we are made anonymous. Men always say to me, uh, this is <laughs> classic, men, all men always say to me, but I have encountered some men in my life who have said, you know, I really love big cities because, you know, you can just disappear in a city, you can be anonymous, you can just go for a long walk at night. And I was like, oh, can you? 
<laughs> I can't. Mm -hmm. But there is that that feeling of, of being one in a crowd um, that you get from a city that we don't have at the moment because we actually are required to live in community, to be aware of one another and to wear our masks so that we don't kill everyone around us. Mm. It's interesting because it's kind of at the same time, you're kind of hyper conscious of the people around you, but you can't have a connection with them. Mm. Like you are caring about them by wearing your mask, but you are more isolated from them. I'm just interested in how it's more noticeable now that we are alone because we must have been like this for a, a while. Like maybe you're inherently alone in a city, but now we're kind of forced to recognize that in a different way. I don't know. I've, I definitely have not thought about loneliness that much but I've been feeling not great recently and then I realized well my mom is self-isolating at the moment and usually I'd see her and my mm. um, partner is at work which you know people have been off work and on work and at the moment he's on work or going to work and I realized I was like oh I'm really lonely but I have so many people that I'm connecting with online and stuff but it just hadn't occurred to me that that you're like, oh, actually, I just haven't seen anyone face to face for a long time. I wonder about the kind of fiction that you think will come out of these these feelings, this realization. Is there anything that you've kind of seen, uh, any trends that you've seen coming that you think might come out this year or the next year resulting from this pandemic? So I have seen some interesting, some interesting romance stuff like my Coronas lover. Um, and I think that there will be some, some interesting stuff about like, you know, people longing to be together, but they can't because they can't touch because they've got masks on, they're not allowed to date, etc. So I think there'll be some really amazing stuff coming out of the romance genre. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of, in terms of literary fiction, there tends to be a lot of isolation in that genre anyway, you know, it's quite concentrated on like the lone wolf type figure mm. and um and so i think that there might be sort of an, an uptick in the lone wolf goes rural uh, type <laughs> by you know people who are holing up in you know chateaus in france or or, or you know flying from new zealand to scotland <coughs> neil gaiman mm. um to feel safe so i think that there will be kind of a, a, a perhaps a turn um not unlike the economy to a kind of pastoral bliss uh because so many people have left cities and yeah. that will i i think that that will be reflected in um in the literature that that is coming i mean i for one welcome that if that is where where things go because so much of what we read at the moment is you know people being hyper connected online you know people living in tight like you know tight confined spaces i always think of the tube when i think about mm. this just like how many people you have to touch when you catch the tube at the wrong time, obviously. If you catch the tube at the right time, you've got the whole circle line to yourself. But I just, uh, yeah, that like that like intimate connection with so many people because the way of life that's kind of coming isn't going to go away, right? We're going to, mm. we're, we're still going to be a society that needs to sustain distance. You know, that coronavirus is also, it's a, it's a name for a, um, a group of diseases and they've been increasing in, in kind of volume. So I think that there may also be a kind of a shift towards an interest in eating ethics um, in nonfiction work as well. Mm. I'm not saying that there's going to be like a massive upswing in veganism. I've just gone through veganuary. There definitely won't be a massive upswing in veganuary in my house. But I do think that people are going to be start people are going to start thinking a little bit more about the, the ethics of their living, basically. 
Um, and I think mm. that will be reflected in what they're reading as well. Yeah, I think I can kind of see it a bit in crafts at the moment. The amount of people that are kind of going back to like, I, oh, this is really snobby, very basic crafts. I just mean crafts that people used to do habitually, maybe mm. 50 years ago, like making their own stuff, knitting, sewing, all of that stuff. Maybe that's going to come back around. Um, I also wanted to say I <laughs> I read your blog about Veganuary and it was brilliant and hilarious and it sounded awful. Like you were really <laughs> good about making something sound just just as horrible as it was <laughs> yeah yeah two batches of vegan yogurt just I yeah I just ruined the yogurt mm. and completely wasted those two jars of um of coconut milk could have made four mm. curries <laughs> well at least you'll know by next January <laughs> yeah we'll see <laughs> brilliant shall we switch over mm. today before talking about a book I would like to talk about a big lump of rock Specifically, the Rothwell Cross, which is a stone cross, which we believe, and by we I do mean Wikipedia, we believe dates back to the 8th century, so medieval Britain, and has survived in spite of the bad weather when it was left outside for a long time, and also iconoclasts who, during the Civil War in the 1600s, smashed it up, which in my opinion, not very civil at all actually quite rude. There are pictures and runes inscribed on this cross, uh, which you're going to have to do your best to imagine or Google for yourself uh, because of the audio format. But runes are pretty hard to read. You can more or less, mostly less, uh, decipher that one bit is most famous man in the medieval world, Jesus Christ. Uh, But the rest of it does need some translation. Even when translated into Old English, the first part does make a bit more sense. It says, Christ was on Rudy. We can only assume that Rudy is a pony that Jesus Christ Rudy around on. Um, <laughs> it goes on. Christ was on Rudy. Quatre therfuse feran quamu athile til anum. God, it's a sexy language. <laughs> our language. Actually, legally, since Brexit, I think we all have to speak like this again, because this is pre-Norman invasion, so there's no French in it. Though, unfortunately, Old English still contains a lot of Saxon, which is German words, along with some Scandinavian words. So, ultimately, truly British communication will be via gesticulation and grunting. To be fair, lots of people have already nailed this. So, what does this old rock have to do with books? Well, in 1822, a book was discovered in a library in Vercelli, which was quickly and ingeniously titled The Vercelli Book. It's a medieval manuscript with loads of medieval English poetry in it. We have basically four medieval manuscripts which contain almost all old English poetry. Another one's called the Exeter Book. Guess where that was found? Another is the Beowulf Manuscript. Given that the texts are pretty difficult to read, at least they made the titles easy. So, what was a book of old English poetry doing in Vercelli? in Italy? Great question. So it seems that Vercelli was a bit of a tourist hotspot on the old pilgrimage circuit. So it's likely that in about the 10th century current era, a rich nobleman presented it as a gift. Because there's nothing that an Italian loves more than a book of completely unreadable English poetry. I can kind of imagine the Italians doing their best, graciously accepting an awful Christmas gift facing, and then kind of storing it under a sofa for centuries. Although I've got to say, given that they've stored 25% of surviving Old English poetry successfully for more than a millennia, I would argue that the European continent is perhaps better at looking after our own stuff than we are. I'm not sure if that's contemporarily relevant, uh, but there we go. Back to business. There's lots of Old English poetry in the book, but most important is the full version, as far as we know, of a poem known as The Dream of the Rude. Unfortunately, it's not spelled rude, R-U-D-E. 
but it obviously does sound like it is. So if you do have to study it, you can pretend it's all about a naughty dream to make it a little bit more bearable. But unfortunately, the real spelling is R-O-O-D, which means cross. So it's the dream of the cross. The text of the Dream of the Rood could have been written at the earliest around 670 and latest sometime in the 12th century. This is basically how dating stuff works for anything pre-Renaissance. It could have been somewhere between these broad 500 years of time uh, and then there's loads and loads of pages about why and why not. It's very boring. The first word in the poem is my favourite Old English word, what. It's like the word what, but they weren't very good at spelling. This more or less meant Listen up, I'm going to tell a story. And a lot of Old English texts start like this. So the poem goes, What ix fefnasist sekan wheeler, what megamat to midranit, sithan riord barenda rest wuneden. Extremely sexy, right? But it means, Listen, I will tell the choicest of dreams that I dreamt at midnight when the speech bearers, or people, were at rest. Which is universally acknowledged as the worst conversation starter ever. So guys, I had this dream, which is awful if it's anyone except Martin Luther King. Anyway, the speaker goes on to tell us about his dream and this cross, which is simultaneously covered in blood and also glistening with heavenly jewels. And the cross basically tells the speaker about the crucifixion and how the cross suffered along with Christ. And now it's both bloody and jewelly at the same time. Which, to be fair, is a pretty weird dream. I usually just dream about being trapped in a tube slide on a giant swimming pool. Anyway, back to the Rothwell Cross. And let's join up this giant medieval jigsaw, like the medieval scholars we all now are. Um, You're absolutely right. The inscription on the cross is a quotation from the Dream of the Root. What the inscription on the stone cross says in modern English is, Christ was on the cross, yet the brave came there from afar to their Lord. And get this, it is an inscription about a cross, written on a cross. Yep, it's medieval meta. Anyway, thank you very much for learning very little about old English poem, The Dream of the Rude. I love that. It's really funny. <laughs> I love the, the the meta cross on cross. Um, yeah, very cool. Yeah. So the English faculty at the University of Leicester has recently been beset by some very serious cuts to their medieval literature staff. And I wondered if, given you know the, the interest here in, in a, a medieval, or even pre-medieval, piece of literature, what the potential damage is, do you think, of a kind of erasing or eliding the teaching of this kind of work from you know English literature degrees? I mean, there's a serious answer, which I genuinely believe, and there's a silly answer. And the silly answer is, my God, what is my old tutor going to do? (laughs) He uh, was a man who like walked around in graveyards and made his own perfumes and was incredibly kind of mystical and just the right level of crazy that you want from a a tutor at university. And I worry about what he's going to do with himself. But on a serious note, I do think it's such a loss it is really hard to understand. That is the problem, I think. Mm. And it's hard for people to understand who are studying English. I don't think I really loved it when I was studying it. But now, you know, the, the more familiar you are with it and the more you can like kind of play around with it the more jokes you can make about how silly some of it is Mm. the more accessible it becomes for you so I just think it's it's a sad reflection on how little people are are able to see beyond the things that are straight in front of them Mm. i.e enough money 
I guess not loads of people study this because it is it is quite niche but there's so much in it like there's like all these old riddles that are basically double entendres so you you read the riddle and it it sounds like something really dirty and it's actually just like an onion or something it's the same sort of (laughs) stuff that we love today and like medieval manuscripts some of the pictures illustrating medieval manuscripts are like funniest things I've ever seen they're like absolutely meme worthy yeah the people on twitter who are doing very well off um like medieval lions in manuscripts a friend of mine who is a medievalist in the english faculty has a whole thing about medieval lions in manuscripts and also on buildings because obviously europeans had never seen lions um so a bit like the the lion angels in um, in venice they look like big dogs um and there's someone else who does angry medieval cats that is the like the perfect intersection for me of social media and medieval studies that's exactly what i want i definitely think that's a way back into it i think that the illustrations (laughs) are so bonkers and the artistry of that era it's like alien to us but in a way that kind of we're coming back round to because i really feel strongly that we have like these kind of cycles of art where we want art to look very very similar to what it's representing and then we want art to be more abstract and we're getting into a more abstract or we are in a more abstract phase i think it's just delightful to look at stuff that like obviously doesn't look like it's supposed to look i've seen like one where there's like frogs and also the medi uh, they loved turning stuff on its heads so like there's loads of like rabbits chasing people that's inherently hilarious and we love we still love that idea right of yeah. turning power on its head yeah reversing hierarchies yeah yeah well Chaucer is so hysterically funny and that isn't given enough yeah maybe like airtime is not the right word but airtime in yeah in literary studies I mean I know that I literally like work on the future but I I have had my eyes opened to how hilarious so much of literature from the medieval period was thanks to being um, in an institution that is kind of renowned for for medieval work you know previously I was I was in South Africa and then I was um, at the University of York where you know the stuff that I that I do is kind of de rigueur but here it isn't and that means that I've been exposed to so much more and so I'm able to kind of to think in a in a far broader way and I think that's the value that the humanities brings that you know that there is a broadening and and that we, you're engaged through humour, which is so important. I think people just hear the word Chaucer and they think about studying it at school. And I'm sure it was terribly taught. And so all they remember is like that it was hard. But Chaucer's like, there's someone who sticks their bum out of a window and farts on someone else's face. Like that is the most kid humour ever. And um, there's a bit that I... I did this show that I was taking around last year, the year before last, um, when that was possible, called The Reduced Literature Degree. And there's a bit in Chaucer in The Miller's Tale where he goes, uh, something, 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 something. And privily, he caught her by the quainter, which means he grabbed her by the pussy, which is what Trump said. (laughs) If you can't see the parallels between medieval people and us... There are so many. So people just have this assumption that the past was so much worse and people were stupid. Mm. And I think that makes us arrogant and often wrong Mm, yeah yeah the the narrative of progress right this is one of the facets of my argument right that we we think about the future and we think about we think about progress as sort of that the socialness of progress is is bound up in its like technologized you know dreaming but actually we are the same bums farting (laughs) in people's faces in Chaucer that we were you know a thousand years ago we haven't evolution doesn't work that fast (laughs) 
we have the internet yeah but like we don't actually have the brains that are capable of like processing the internet which is why like all our faces are melting you know and we and we talk about progress and we have ideas about technological progress and that's going to like bring the world closer together but like it hasn't mm. um and it doesn't it drives us apart it like fosters you know grief between people Twitter is a prime example for this. Yeah, and then I think about yeah this presumption that we have that we have moved on in some way or that we are that we are getting better. And I'm like, no, we're not. It's the same shit with different tech. Yeah, exactly. And especially because the internet is just used to share the same memes that they'd already created like a thousand years ago about the angry frog or <laughs> the cat in some armor. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen the one where? It's like the woman picking the dicks off the tree (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) oh my god what's even better about that stuff is that like the only people who could write and read were like people who were educated in churches so like some monk somewhere had to sit down and be like i'm gonna paint a woman picking dicks off a tree Uh (laughs) and this is gonna get passed and it fucking does Thank you very much for those questions, Chelsea. Where can people find you if they want to read more of your stuff or find out more about your thesis? I have a I have an academic website because um, I'm extremely professional, which is just my name and my surname dot com. So chelseahaith.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Haith. It's all very easy. I'm eminently Googleable because I was a journalist for a while. So you can find photographs of me, not in that way, um, and <laughs> news articles from when I I wrote about music long ago. Yeah, so I'm I'm findable in lots of ways. Um and I write for the conversation a little bit sometimes as well. So I can be found and spoken to and I hope that I come across as friendly. Also, you make your own podcast. Yes, I also make a podcast. I forget. I have made a podcast. Narrative Futures is a, a terminal series of eight episodes of chats by myself with some amazing people, uh, Lauren Bierkus, Mavish Murad, uh, EJ Swift, Jared Shuren, Sammy Shah, Tade Thompson and Ken Liu um, all feature on it. Uh, if I've left someone out, I'm going to feel like a real dick. And yeah, we talk about the future, we talk about literature, we talk about writing. And then the brilliant Louis Greenberg comes on to the podcast and poses writing prompts. Uh, so if you're stuck at home, and you've got nothing to do. The podcast is an interesting kind of opportunity to think through some kind of futuristic ideas and then respond to those ideas guided by the excellent Louis and I am working on a new project as well so Narrative Futures is sort of boxed and available on Spotify for you to listen to but my new project is The Sound of Contagion and there is some podcast bits of it available and there will be more soon but that is a music composition narratology and AI intersecting project where we've fed a whole bunch of pandemic novels into an AI it's given us back some crazy stuff we're setting it to music and we're eventually going to turn it into a short animated film so look out for that uh, again probably just on my website and on my twitter that sounds incredible I know that I've tried that with writing jokes and stuff putting it into the AI and it always comes up with stuff that is definitely weird some of which is better than what I would have written I was like talking about baby names there was a joke that I had that was like, I want to call my kid Atlas, but there's a slippery slope to naming my second child dictionary. And I put that into it. and It was like slippery slope to naming my second child dictionary.com, which was <laughs> infinitely better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm very impressed with it. <laughs> that is what we're going to call the baby now. Dictionary.com. <laughs> I also just want to say that I would super recommend Narrative Futures and the prompts are 
excellent. And I know that at Old Book Club, we run a little writing group. So that might appeal to people who are listening. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.